Okay, good morning everybody. Good to see you all. So today we continue with uh, our exploration of uh, the Diamond Sutra. We are continuing uh, with uh, chapter 17, which we have not finished last time. And for those of you who are new to this, to this study or to the Diamond Sutra, it can be seen as a long dokusan between Subhuti and the Buddha. A long dokusan that begins with uh, Subhuti holding on to having a self and a body to renounce, uh, to get beyond that, to achieve uh, everlasting enlightenment, realization, and to break the cycle of uh, birth and death. And uh, so he comes into this discussion as an arhat, right, as a shravaka, a voice hearer. And throughout the, the uh, sutra, the Buddha takes him slowly and uh, continuously from that viewpoint to slowly realizing that what he's doing, what he's trying to do is not possible because if there is nothing there, what is there to renounce? We can only renounce what's there. But if there's nothing there to begin with, why do that? Why bother pretending that there is something there? Or why believe that there is something there? Right? So, and, and in a way, our practice is, is to examine, not to believe, but to examine on our own whether or not there is something there. Whether we love it, we hate it, whatever we think about it uh, is actually secondary to the examination of whether or not there is something there called me. Or what is it? What do I call me? What do I call you? What is there? So, that's in a nutshell. Okay, so uh, back to the chapter. So I'm going to go back to the sutra. Subhuti, imagine a perfect person with an immense perfect body. The Venerable Subhuti said, Bhagavan, this perfect person whom the Tathagata says has an immense perfect body, Bhagavan, the Tathagata says has no body. Thus, it is called an immense perfect body. So, Huineng said, the Buddha says that the, this immense, perfect human body is not an immense body in order to show that all beings are not different from the Dharma body, the Dharmakaya. Because it has no boundaries, there's no boundaries, such a body is immense. There's no bond boundaries, it is not limited to what we think about it. We are not limited to what we think about ourselves. And the other is not limited to what we think about the other. Such a body is immense. So to have no reference, as you've heard before, to have no reference point is to achieve realization. And because the Dharma body does not occupy a space or a place, he says it is not an immense body. Moreover, a person's physical body might be immense. But if there is no wisdom inside, it is not an immense body. And although a physical body might be small, 
if there is wisdom within, it can be called an immense body. But even if someone does possess wisdom, if they cannot practice accordingly, there cannot be an immense body. While someone who practices according to the teaching, who awakens to the peerless knowledge of Buddhas, whose mind is not limited by subject or object, theirs is an immense body. So this is, in one word, referring to equanimity. Right? The ability to see beyond what we think. The ability to see beyond what we see or beyond what the eye sees, beyond what the ear hears. Beyond any limitation that we think we are subjected to or, or trapped by. So, and, and the other thing to look at here is what exactly is my definition of uh, greatness? Which is actually, it appears in one of our miscellaneous koans. What is greatness? When we examine that word, when we, and it, and it varies, right? So conventionally, you get 20 people, you get 20, 20 variations of what that means. None of which actually have to do with what the Buddha is referring to. Right? All those varieties of greatness have everything to do with thought, have everything to do with our separation. Once there is no separation or when there is no gap, there is nothing but greatness. And the issue with that is, for us personally, is that uh, there's nobody to know greatness. That's the, the catch for us. Can we be okay with that? Just greatness as is. So Bill Porter says, having established that there is no body to renounce, the Buddha returns to Subhuti's questions. Bodhisattvas do not practice on do not practice on, rely on such dharmas as setting forth on the bodhisattva path. Because there is no such dharma as a bodhisattva. And there is no such dharma as a bodhisattva. So bodhi is enlightened, sattva is being. Because there is no such dharma as a sattva, as a being. And there is no such dharma as... So, being, uh, being as a sattva and body as enlightened, who is it that is going to be enlightened? If there's no being, what happens to the being that wants to be enlightened? And there is no being because no being of any other dharma comes into existence. This is how bodhisattvas control their thoughts. What does that do to us or to, to our work with thoughts? We try to eradicate, we try to eliminate thoughts, persistent thoughts that arise year after year, decade after decade. We, as long as we think that there is something there to eradicate, we are trapped. But what happens when we recognize that there is nothing there to eradicate? Because what seems to be persistent, what seems to be persistent, has no form, is not fixed. Of course, when we assign fixedness to it, it is fixed. And therefore, we are trapped. So, the Diamond Sutra goes into the heart, to the core of where we need to look at and then examine whether or not it is true. What is it that we are trying to eliminate? 
who is it that we are trying to save and who is saving? Huynek says, if Bodhisattva say, because I teach dharmas, I eliminate the passions and passions and suffering of others. This is dharma of individuality. If they say, I have liberated beings, this is to possess something. Although they liberate other beings, if they think about a subject or an object and don't get rid of self and other, they cannot be called bodhisattvas. Whereas, even if they zealously teach all sorts of experience to help and liberate other beings, as long as their minds remain free of subject and object, they are bodhisattvas indeed. So, to set forth on the path of a bodhisattva, right, which is what we are doing, right, and this is saying there is no such a thing. There is no such a thing as a bodhisattva path. And there are no bodhisattvas who set forth on that path. So what are we doing? What are we doing with the practice? How do we understand the practice? And why is it so important? Why is it so important that we examine the fixedness of what we think we're doing? Well... Think about it for a few minutes. Back to the Sutra. Subhuti, if a Bodhisattva should thus claim, I shall bring about the transformation of a world, such a claim would be untrue. And how so? The transformation of the world, Subhuti, the transformation of the world is said by the Tathagata to be no transformation. Thus, it is called the transformation of the world. And Bin Porter says, this is one of the most puzzling concepts to Western students of Buddhism. But it is an essential part of everyday Bodhisattva's repertoire of expedient skills. To liberate beings is to transform the world. Makes sense. And vice versa. To transform the world is to liberate beings. This conception of leading beings is to a provisional transformed spiritual state where they are more easily liberated became the basis of Pure Land Buddhism as well as Tantric Buddhism. But here, in the radical teaching of the perfection of wisdom, not only are beings not liberated, the world is not transformed by the Bodhisattva's act of renunciation or self-sacrifice. Bodhisattvas cannot find any self to sacrifice much less a world to transform or others to liberate. So, we chant the four vows. I will save all beings, regardless of how many there are. Infinite. How does these two things connect? So let's open it up for a few minutes before we continue. So, how do we reconcile the work we do, what we devote ourselves to, and these teachings that say clearly there is nobody there to liberate and nobody can do the work of liberation. What does that mean? Your turn. Anyone? So today is going to be Daibo. 
Got it? We can't hear you. I don't know why. How about now? Good. Good to go. Okay. So, um, I, I see our practice as aspirational to a certain extent in the sense that, you know, we can never get there because there's nowhere to get to. So, um, it seems to me that, that our chance and the practice points towards, um, you know, a path of action, right? It doesn't tell us what action to take, um, but it points us towards something um, that is really right here, right now. So with that being said, um, I think that this passage in the sutra um, is a warning against attachment to ideas and concepts, mm -hmm. because the real practice is in the doing, not in the thinking of transforming the world or in saving other beings. It's not those ideas or concepts, but it's the actions that we do um, in order to um, manifest the practice in our daily lives. Um, things as simple as um, paying attention to mundane tasks, paying attention to other people, uh, paying attention to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that that, in a sense, is um, what this passage is pointing to. Now, if I get caught up in um, the idea of helping someone rather than just helping them, mm -hmm. then I'm stuck in the idea of helping them rather than just helping them. Um, yeah. So that, that's my understanding of this. Thank you. Uh, yes, so, so it means uh, not creating something to attach ourselves to, right? Uh, but in, in a nutshell, we can say that uh, it's really a sigh of relief. Because we're not doing anything. When we realize we're not doing anything, we actually are freed to do a lot more. Without any idea of doing anything and without any idea of, I will save you. I will save you. I got the goods. And if you're going to be nice, maybe I will give you some, right? So it definitely holds on to a gap. And we can become very easily, very quickly self-righteous about it, right? And, and get caught up in right and wrong because I know what's right and what you're doing is wrong, right? And uh, I will tell you what to do. The other thing is also to, to, to relate to other people, to understand that... Uh, you know, while we may think that other people create their own suffering, by looking at them from that, uh, from that perspective, we are creating an idea of liberation. When you look at others and you see, well, he's trapped or she's trapped, you are creating an idea of being freed. And, you, and we're creating a gap. I'm free, you're not. My actions are much more in alignment with, with reality, your actions are not. That's another source of uh, suffering, which is all it is. So anything, anything, we, we, uh, anything that starts to formulate in the mind very quickly needs to be seen as no form, as something that does not have fixedness in it. And if it doesn't have a fixedness in it, it lightens, it lightens everything up right away and how can we get caught up in 
Nothing. Right? So there's nothing to get caught up in and nobody's there to be caught up. Go ahead, Daigo. Um, yeah, you know, and it also, you know, for me, it also, it's, it's what well, we always talk about, you know, eliminating things, but, you know, a big part of our practice is manifesting things also mm-hmm. and getting caught up in the notion of manifesting something, manifesting our practice, you know, for me personally, manifesting my vows, um, you, you start to get wrapped up in the concept of manifesting rather than just doing and being and um, and that creates a gap because you're trying to make something when there's nothing really to make there's only so there's only doing right right thank you so I'm gonna keep going and then we're gonna open up again uh, again back to search Subhuti when a Bodhisattva resolves on selfless Dharma as selfless Dharmas the Tathagata, the Ahan, the fully enlightened one, pronounces that person a fearless Bodhisattva. And the fearlessness really has to do with uh, dealing with our tendency to, uh, to formulate, to formulate the self, to formulate other, and to want to grab hold onto that. So the fearlessness has to do with living life without grasping. Without grasping, which is a, it's a big thing to ask because we, the, the default is grasping. So without holding on to anything, moment by moment, day by day, unless we do it, unless we, we live this way, it's, it, is, it is not possible to practice fearlessness as a bodhisattva. Winang said, uh, not to be blocked by, en- by the form of any Dharma is to understand. Not to think about understanding is what is meant by the absence of a self. Those without a self, the Buddha says, are true bodhisattvas. If you remember, uh, Bodhidharma said that the, the greatest gift you can bestow upon the world is the gift of self. The greatest act of generosity is the act of giving up the self. Those who practice according to their capacity are also called bodhisattvas, but they are not yet true bodhisattvas. Only those who understand and practice are perfect and complete and who have eliminated all thoughts of subjects and objects are called true bodhisattvas. So, and also Huineng said, in order to liberate people, we establish a provisional self. So it's kind of, well, let's create something as upaya. So we can say that for a bodhisattva, the self is not more than skillful means. So I am a skillful mean in order to do the work. So we create a self so the self can do the work of selflessness. That makes sense? So in order to liberate people, we establish a provision for the time being, there is something there as long as we understand and this works as long as we understand that essentially there is nothing there but for the time being there is someone there and we're going to call that someone daibo as long as we all agree that's what we're going to call this person fine great so you daibo go do this and that as long as there is an understanding not right now you can stay as long as (laughs) As long as we understand that it is provisional, that it is for the time being, 
then we are free. If we're not, if we don't understand that, then we are creating a new trap. So, and then Bill Porter uh, concludes that by saying the end is the beginning, and the beginning is the end. Bodhisattvas begin by not being attached to perceptions of self, and not being attached to perception of other. The difference is the difference between our personal self and the Dharma or our personal self and the Dharma self. So we can see it as two selves. Because we imagine we have a self, all things to which we attribute reality must also have a self. So in a way, if, if, you don't, uh, if we don't create a self, we don't create reality as something fixed. So if the self is not fixed, reality is not fixed. If I'm not fixed, you're not fixed. Or if I'm saying... If I'm uh, judging you, I am creating a fixed me because I'm creating a fixed you. As long as we don't do that, don't get caught up in that, you are free to be or to move or to be what you need to be. And I'm free to be what I need to be. But on closer examination, he says, our self turns out to be no self. And the point here is on closer, ex closer examination. And the self-nature of dharmas also turns out to be empty of any self, which means that there, is, there are no teachings. And yet, such selflessness is what constitutes a dharma. Only those who perceive such selflessness can be called bodhisattvas. Thus, the end is no beginning, and no beginning is the end. So we're going to move on to chapter 18. And uh, uh, if anybody wants to say a few words about that, let's uh, keep it going for a few more minutes before we uh, move on. Anyone wants to uh, add something to this chapter 17? Are we good? Okay. Moving on. Chapter 18. The Buddha said, Subhuti. What do you think? Does the Tathagata possess a physical eye? Subhuti replied, So he does, Bhagavan. The Tathagata, Bhagavan is another epithet of the Buddha. Bhagavan, the Tathagata possesses a physical eye. The Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? Does the Tathagata possess a divine eye? Subhuti replied, So he does, Bhagavan. The Tathagata possesses a divine eye. The Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? Does the Tathagata possess a prajna eye? Subhuti replied, So he does, Bhagavan. The Tathagata possesses a prajna eye, wisdom. The Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? Does the Tathagata possess a dharma eye? And Subhuti replied, So he does, Bhagavan. The Tathagata possesses a dharma eye. Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? Does the Tathagata possess a Buddha eye? And Subhuti replied, So he does, Bhagavan. The Tathagata possesses a Buddha eye. Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? As many grains of sands as they are in the great river of the Ganges, does the Tathagata not speak of them as grains of, of sand? Subhuti replied, So he does, Bhagavan. So he does, Sugata. The Tathagata speaks of them as grains of sand. 
Buddha said, what do you think, Subhuti? If there were as many rivers as all the grains of sand in the great river of the Ganges, and as many wells as they are grains of sand in all these rivers, would there be many worlds? Subhuti replied, so they would, Bhagavan, so they would, Sugata. There would be many worlds, Buddha said, and as many beings as they might be in those worlds, Subhuti, I would know their myriad streams of thought. And how so? Streams of thoughts, Subhuti, what the Tathagata speaks of as streams of thoughts, are no streams. Thus they are called streams of thoughts. And how so? Subhuti, a past thought cannot be found, a future thought cannot be found, nor can a present thought be found. And that last line is a very famous, very important line in the sutra, a very important line uh, for us as we practice, actually. So it's great guidance and advice. Bhutpoda says, in the previous chapter, Subhuti repeated his initial set of questions, and the Buddha responded by telling him how bodhisattvas should stand and walk. In this chapter, he tells Subhuti how they should control their thoughts, which they do by transforming their thoughts into Buddha dharmas, which they do by perceiving the selflessness of all dharmas. This is the practice of upaya, or skillful means. But if a bodhisattva, bodhisattvas are to transform their thoughts, they first need to find their thoughts. Hence, the Buddha summons the concept of the five eyes, which takes these teachings beyond the limited cultivation of emptiness and personal salvation. Characteristics of Shravaka practitioners such as Subhuti. For while Subhuti had acquired the first three of these eyes, the physical, divine, and prajna, wisdom, he had no experience of the last two that sees beyond the nihilism of emptiness to the compassionate awareness and liberation of other beings, and by means of which Dipankara was able to see Sumedha's future Buddhahood. Dipankara was the, the old, the ancient uh, teacher of the Buddha, and Sumedha was Shakyamuni's previous name, many eons before he became a Buddha, for he was known as a Buddha. The Buddha also mentions uh, these eyes to remind Subhuti that bodhisattvas work in many dimensions and use countless means to liberate countless beings. And this is actually, this connects very well to what we chant. Or it, it sheds light on how to understand what we chant with the four vows. This is what the Buddha means by Buddha Dharmas. And this is also what he means by resolving on selfless dharmas, seeing that all dharmas are empty and without any self-nature is not enough. The only way bodhisattvas can liberate other beings is by making use of, of the very selfless dharmas to which beings are attached. Thus, the Buddha introduces us to the dharma eye and the Buddha eye. So, Dogen said, actualize the fundamental point. And this comes down to 
do we understand or how do we understand the meaning of actualizing the fundamental point? We may understand, or Subhuti may understand, the fundamental point and may have deep experiences of uh, uh, being one with the fundamental point. But the question is, how do, do we know how to actualize it? Or do we know how to not get caught up in the way we actualize it? Also, uh, in Vimalakirti Sutra, the ability, Vimalakirti's ability to not get caught up, to not create conceptual ideas from the people he used to hang out with. He was able to show up everywhere and anywhere based on the need, and he was able to adapt and adjust to circumstances. So he basically feared no one and was able to revere while being in the world in any form that was needed. Even mother was not an issue. Well, if you remember, he was able to recognize Mala, although Mala was disguised, he was able to recognize Mala and see right through that and not get caught up in what Mala was trying to, to do at that time. So Vasubandhu says, again, the, doubts, the doubt arises as it was previously said that bodhisattvas see no beings, that bodhisattvas are those who see no self and do not see pure Buddha land. And that those who do not see any dharmas are called Buddhas. Someone might think Buddhas and Tathagatas do not see any dharmas. To resolve this doubt, the Sutra brings up the five eyes. So the physical eye perceives objects in the realm of desire, but it only perceives their external aspect that cannot penetrate something as thin as a piece of paper, much less such things as walls or mountains. While most humans are born with physical eyes and, and employ them to, in the satisfaction of their desires, bodhisattvas use their to, theirs to behold the realm within, with, within which they liberate other beings. Which has to do with knowing how to use the eye or knowing how to use the ear, knowing how to use the body which can be anywhere from 100 miles to a billion worlds across. Such is a bodhisattva's physical eye when purified of the concepts of self, being life and a soul. The Buddha begins with the physical eye to remind Subhuti that the Tathagata shares the same kind of body as humans and that they too can acquire their remaining four eyes that culminate with the Buddha eye. So according to Nagarjuna, the physical eye sees the near but not the far, the front but not the back, the outside but not the inside, the light but not the dark, the top but not the bottom. Because it is obstructed, a bodhisattva seeks the divine eye. And the divine eye perceives objects in the realm of form. In addition to their external aspect, it, it also perceives their internal aspect. Thus, it can see through paper as well as walls and mountains. Such vision is characteristics of the divas who live in the various heavens. But it is also acquired by those beings who cultivate samadhi or the higher 
trances of meditation. So Nagarjuna says, Divine Eye sees only those provisionally named things that result from the combination of causes and conditions and not their true appearance or not the true nothingness within the somethingness, nor their emptiness or their formlessness, their non-existent and their birthlessness, or their deathlessness. The same holds for their past, their present, and their future. Hence, the Bodhisattva seeks the Prajnai, and the Prajnai perceives objects in the realm of formlessness. Otherwise, without the, the, the opening the Prajna eye, it is not possible to see that something is essentially nothing. And if, if we don't see that something is essentially nothing, how can we get beyond wanting to eradicate it or uh, let it go? The Prajna eye perceives objects in the realm of formlessness, hence it perceives their essential emptiness. The Prajna eye is possessed by those who cultivate the Shravaka path, but it is also acquired by Bodhisattvas and others who see no dharmas, nothing good or bad, nothing created or uncreated, nothing pure or impure, nothing mundane or transcendent. Nagarjuna said, the Prajnaya does not see beings for all common and differentiating characteristics are extinguished. It is free of all attachments and immune to all dharmas, including Prajna itself. But because it does not distinguish anything, the Prajna eye cannot liberate other beings. Hence, the Bodhisattva gives rise to the Dharma eye. Right? Which, is, which is very important to understand how to connect those and not get lost in what does this mean or what does that mean. It's, what's important is that we don't get caught up in one side or one aspect. Because if we go into nothingness, from a point of nothingness, we can't do anything. There's nobody there, or there's nothing to do. So we have to keep going. So we go deep into nothing and come back into something so we can actually function in a helpful way and truly liberate. Otherwise, we get caught up in it. So we say we uh, ascend the mountain, realize, nothingness, realize unity of all things, and then descend the mountain back to the marketplace, back to where everybody else is. Otherwise, we end up separated from everybody, and that will be a shame. Therefore, we have koans, like, how do you step forward from a hundred-foot pole? Right? Because you may not want to step forward, because the view is great and the air is great, much better than in the city. Who wants that? The Dhammai perceives the means to liberate others and is only possessed by bodhisattvas. While the Prajnai sees the emptiness of all things, the Dhammai discerns their myriad differences. While the Prajnai is concerned with the truth of emptiness, the Dhammai is concerned with the truth of provisional reality. So there is a provisional self and there is a provisional other. The reality of appearances. Things are different, but being different doesn't make them not the same. 
Thus, with their Dharmai, Bodhisattvas see the kind of cultivation and level of attainment of other beings as well as the means to liberate them. Nagarjuna said, the Dharmai enables a Bodhisattva to cultivate a Dharma and to realize a path as well as to know the expedient means by which other beings can do, can do so. The Dharmai, however, is not omniscient in its awareness of the expedient means for liberating beings. Hence, a Bodhisattva seeks the Buddha eye, which is the fifth one. The Buddha eye sees everything, including what, whatever is seen by the other four eyes. It, is all, it's not only, it not only sees things in the present, it only sees them in the past and in the future. With their prajna eye, Buddha sees the emptiness of all things. And with their dharma eye, they see their underlying appearance. But with their Buddha eye, they see the middle path between these two. Sameness and merging, sameness and differences, right? Whereby the doctrines of emptiness and dharma reality merge into the path of non-duality. Shakyamuni acquired this eye at the night of his enlightenment. Thus, it is only possessed by Buddhas. The Avatamsaka Sutra provides a somewhat different definition of the five eyes. The physical eye sees all forms. The divine eye sees the thoughts of all beings. The Prajna eye sees the situations and capabilities of all beings. The Dharma eye sees the true appearance of all Dharmas. And the Buddha eye sees the ten powers of the Tathagata. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said something very nice about this. He says, these five questions and answers state that the Buddha has not only the Buddha eye, but also the eyes of the Bodhisattvas, Shravakas, gods, humans, and all other living beings. The fact that the Buddha has a human eye gives us a pleasant feeling. It makes us feel closer to the Buddha. It means that what the Buddha accomplished, we too have the ability to accomplish. It's a nice way to say that. Musong, in the first section, the Buddha goes through the hierarchy to establish the levels of seeing into the nature of things. The human eye, the divine eye, the Gnostic eye, the Prajna eye, and the Buddha eye. With the human eye, one sees the flowers, the sky, and the clouds. The divine eye sees things regardless of the obstacle of time and space. This is the eye of the gods living in the god realm and of the clairvoyant seer. The Gnostic or the inside eye allows one to see the impermanence and lack of self-nature in all living beings. This is the eye of the hearers and solitary awakened ones, the Shravakas. Although these practitioners have awakened to the truth, they, are, they do not yet have the full awakening of the Tathagata. The Prajna eye is the eye of transcendent wisdom that enables bodhisattvas to see the empty nature of all phenomena. Tiknatan contends that this is the eye that can see the true nature of the emptiness of all objects of mind. It can see the nature of awakened mind and 
of the great vow. A bodhisattva with the eye of transcendent wisdom sees that he or she and all being all beings share the same nature of emptiness. So these are the this description of five eyes and of course, you know, it can sound foreign to us and, and we have we may have trouble connecting with these teachings. But Tao Chuang says something very clear concerning the location of the five eyes. They are all below your eyebrows. So if we look elsewhere, we're lost. All of it, everything that I just read, all of it is right here, right now. So, yeah, it's easy to get lost in such descriptions and to make something of it. But the previous chapters, chapter told us don't make anything of it, so we're already good with that. Now that we don't make any, anything of it, turn it around and look at the one who wants to make something of it. All of it actually culminates here. So, where are we at with this? How do you feel about this? Raise your hand, unmute, speak. Yes, go for it. Uh, I don't know if Sugiyoko meant to go. Are you? You can go first. You go first, yes, and then Sugiyoko. Well, right at the beginning, when you started with chapter 18, mm -hmm. you uh, use the phrase control thoughts. And the first step is to find the thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I'm curious to go a little farther with the that statement of controlling the thoughts. Uh, the word controlling seems um, out, of, out of line with my understanding. Yeah. So... Good question. Thank you for that. Uh, so, what does it mean to control? Uh, you you may remember from uh, Suzuki. He said, you know, if you want to control your thoughts, uh, treat them like you have lots of sheep that you want to herd. Give them a huge meadow to graze freely, right? So the word control, the the word control is not what we think it is. Uh, I could give you an example from Aikido, for example, uh, with with uh, practice. Um, when we, when somebody attacks and you blend with the attack, you control the attack by allowing the attack to uh, dissipate by not opposing the attack. Opposing the attack creates resistance and, and maintains a, a sense of a gap, right? And can, may or may not work or may, may work temporarily. But to truly control is to allow. Right, that's one. And the other thing is, uh, in order to control, we have to find the thought first, right? So we say we want to control, but let's ask, what is it that we are trying to control? Because to say I want to control it, or I want to control my thoughts, is to, to uh, rely on the assumption that the thoughts are there as something fixed that I need to control, right? And they have power, and I want to mitigate that power. Right, so uh, when Huike came to uh, Bodhidharma, right, and he said, you know, my mind is not at ease, give me peace of mind. And, and Bodhidharma said, okay, no problem. Go bring me your thoughts. Bring me the mind. 
bring me that which you claim to hold you back. Bring me back that which you want to control. Bring me back that which you, you would like to find peace of or peace within, right? So Huica went, came back and said, I can't find anything. And then Bodhidharma said, there you go. I have given you peace of mind. So you can change that to, there you go. You learn to control your mind by realizing that there is nothing there. Does that help? Uh, yes, and this connects to another question, which is, is seeing with the five eyes a process? So for example, um, you know, at first before maybe practicing, um, it either takes you a very long time to go through this process and see and like to understand something or to, you know, um, to get to that point of understanding with a particular maybe occurrence or issue or pattern or whatever you're looking at. Um, and that with practice, maybe sometimes that process could tighten up and that you could come to see more clearly, more quickly. But then also, um, if it is a process, maybe it's possible for that process to uh, still take a long time, you know, where that you see something or you observe something and then, you know, being able to see with each eye successively uh, can still take the rest of your life, but that you don't jump to, uh, you don't short circuit the process such that you um, discriminate. You know, so I guess the way that that would be practical uh, in my understanding would be, um, you know, how do you know when, when you're seeing something with the divine eye versus uh, just discriminating and thinking that you know what's happening? Right. So that has to do with how we practice uh, in terms of fixedness, right? So we have to understand also that this is upaya. All of it is upaya. All of it is skillful means. If it's skillful means, then there is essentially nothing there. So if there's nothing there, let's not, let's not make anything of it, right, for one. So yes, there is, so that's that. And there is a gradual progression, as you, right, as you mentioned. So it does open up. But it's not opening up later. It's actually opening up now we may not be as wide viewed or able to see that, right? So we, because of that, we get caught up. Because of that, we hold on to our own creations, thinking that there is something there. So this is true. But at the same time, what this is talking about is what is always there, right? So, so the analogy of climbing a mountain uh, was brought up uh, many times. And it's a good analogy because as you climb a mountain, you look down at the valley, you're seeing a valley. As you climb higher, you're seeing more of the same valley. You have never, it's not that you have seen a different valley. It's not that you're not there now. It's just that your ability, our ability to see uh, gradually expands. Because what happens, if you use the eye or the seeing, our ability to see into different dimensions that are always here changes over time. Or oh, the way we use the eye changes right so first we may use the eye in the most uh, uh, immediate uh, way of using it right so we are getting caught up by what we see 
I see you, therefore I am holding on to the assumption that there is a gap between us. That I am not you and you are not me, right? So that is the immediate way of seeing, right? Or, or unpracticed way of seeing. But if you go deeper and deeper into that, you realize, wait a minute, you know, that's not exactly true. It may provisionally be true, but it's not exactly, or it's not completely true, right? So, yes, so it does expand over time, and it may take a long time, but we're not going anywhere. Right? So if we get caught up in, in, in also in, in the concept of time, that's another creation, that's another formulation to be trapped by. And, and the other thing with that is, I'll end with this, uh, that uh, time and being are not two. If time and being are not two, then we have to ask, who is looking at time as something outside of the eye? of the mind. And if time and being are realized as one, where is the trap? So it takes care of waiting. Does that work? Sigyoku, yes. So um, my question is about um, the experience of being in the Dharma eye. So um, if you're seeing things from the perspective of the Dharma eye, it, um, no, no, the Prajna eye, <laughs> excuse me. Okay. Um, it sounds to me like that is an experience of, um, being detached, objective, seeing the factual nature of things, and that it would be without an accompanying emotion or feeling tone. Well, okay, so I'm going to you know, go back to this. The Dharma enables the Bodhisattva to cultivate a Dharma and to realize a path as well as to know expedient, the expedient means by which other beings can do so. So the Dharma, however, is not omniscient, omniscient in its awareness of the expedient means for liberating beings. Hence, the Bodhisattva seeks the, 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 the Buddha, right? So, yes, uh, well, what is... What is, I, the, what I, is the Dharmakaya? I misspoke. I really meant the Prajna eye. Oh, the Prajna eye. I'm sorry. Do you want me to repeat the question? No, no, no. I'm going to go back to this. Hang on a second. So the Prajna eye perceives objects in the realm of formlessness. Right. So what you were saying that in that, well, in that the provisional self is not seen. Right? The provision... One the provisional self is not seen, right? That's so. Or, or let's just go to the first of the eightfold path: right understanding. What is right understanding? Seeing things they as they are, both in the sense of unfixed and empty, but also in the sense of. Uh, 
the world of um, of self and form, what is happening now. Seeing, okay. yeah, seeing things the way they are, right. So, so seeing things, so seeing things as not separated, right? Seeing things as not separated and seeing things as essentially, that they essentially lack separate existence. So you're asking about uh, the emotions, where do they go? I'm saying that it wouldn't have a feeling tone. It wouldn't have, um, it would just be factual. It's before you think about what you just said. Before you formulate that thought that you, that you, you just expressed, the ground, and the, on the ground level, before anything arises, or what gives things the ability, the possibility to arise. So it's that by which the mind can think. It's that by which the eye can see. It's that by which the ear can hear. And if you go to the, to, to the mind and the thoughts or the emotions, then you are looking, you're not looking where this is pointing at. You see, this is pointing at before, which is not somewhere else. It's pointing at the before now or the before in now. So before the mind moves, there it is. It's also there after the mind moves. It's just that after the mind moves, obviously it's much easier to get caught up. Does that work? I have to contemplate it. Or, or not. <laughs> not at all. Okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so I'll, I'll keep going. The Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? As many grains of sand as there are in the, as there are in the great river of the Ganges that the Tagata not speak of them as grains of sand. And Subhuti replied, so he does, Bhagavan, so he does, Sugata, the Tathagata speaks of them as grains of sand. And Bill Porter said about that uh, paragraph, whenever the Buddha wanted to an example of an infinitely great number of mass, he did not have to look too far. Most of his years as a teacher were spent in towns and uh, cities, meeting places of meditation and groves along the shores of the Ganges. A river whose sand is so fine, it is more like mud than sand. But instead of denying the reality of these grains of sand, the Buddha affirms their existence, for he now is now using his Dharma eye rather than his Prajna eye. The difference depending on whether he is concerned with the truth of emptiness or the truth of differences. Since he is here concerned with knowing the thoughts of beings in order to choose the most appropriate means by which to liberate them. His focus is on the Dharma eye. The grains of sand in the Ganges are thus used here by the Buddha to help those of us 
uh, whose vision is limited to our physical eyes to comprehend the infinite number of thoughts of all beings and the power of the Plajna eye to perceive them and the power of the Dharma eye to transform them. So, so when we look at that, uh, especially the last line here, right? So, so the mind, the mind of, of the past cannot be grasped the mind of the present cannot be grasped and the mind of the future cannot be grasped, right? So th there is infinity there, right? And uh, often because it is too infinite, it is so infinite, it is so vast, we tend to want to grab hold on to something or we tend to want to create something because it can be actually terrifying to not have or to have nothing to hold on to. So, and I wanted to go back to uh, an old story here. Uh, th this line, the mind of the, the past, present, future cannot be grasped. So, uh, some of you may have heard this story before, the Tokusan and the old, uh, the old lady, the tea lady. Tokusan was uh, um, a scholar of the Diamond Sutra, and uh, he wrote many commentaries on it, and he was very uh, proud of uh, the depth he, he thought he has reached with understanding the Diamond Sutra. So, uh, and he, he has heard, he was in the north of China, and he's heard about these people in the south uh, that claim that there is uh, it's the school of sudden realization. And uh, he was uh, holding on to the idea of a gradual, you have to learn a lot, you have to study, you have to understand, you have to deepen before you realize. So he decided to pack up all his stuff, all his commentaries, and go down to the south, travel to the south, to prove them wrong. So on the way, uh, he, um, as he approached that area where there was Zen teachers, um, he was hungry and he stopped by this uh, hut and there was uh, this uh, lady who would sell, she sold uh, tenjin, which was just a snack to, uh, it was called a uh, snack to refresh the mind, actually. Tenjin was small rice cakes and tea and uh so he wanted to buy some and then uh, she got curious about all the stuff he had in, on in his coat and she asked him about it and he said well those are my commentaries of of the diamond sutra and then she said oh that's great she said i i actually read about the diamond sutra and she was interested and she said well i'm gonna ask you a question um if you can answer this question i will gladly give you the, the, the tangent, the mochi. But if you cannot answer this question, I won't even sell it to you. So he was like, okay, no problem. Bring it on. Because, you know, he was very good at uh, commentaries and he was a scholar of the Diamond Sutra. And she said, it is said in the Sutra that the mind of the past cannot be grasped, the mind of the present cannot be grasped, the mind of the future cannot be grasped. Which mind would you like to refresh? And uh, it is said that he was dumbfounded. He wasn't able to answer. So he had to live hungry. But uh, he did, before he left, they asked her if, the, if, he, if she knew of a, of a Zen teacher in the area. And she pointed him to Longtan. Uh, and then later on, there was, and this koan number 28 in, the, in, the, in one of our uh, selection of koans, in the Gateless Gate. Um, 
and uh, and this is a very important dialogue that happened after that. So something in him, and this in a way for him was the beginning of loosening up the grip on what he thought he knew, or the depth he, he thought he has reached. So the mind of the past, the mind of the present, the mind of the future. What, what is he saying? And how, what do we do with such a statement? Very important. What do we do with that in terms of dealing with our thoughts and emotions? Or what is it saying about our thoughts and emotions that we absolutely believe and trust that they trap us? What is it saying? So, anyone? Yes, no? Okay, Rezan, you gotta speak. You have to unmute. On oh, there, right, so good. Wrong. Um, I think it says that we cannot help but uh, our. Uh, the way that we are in the world is that we think we have mind. And um, I mean, in that very phrase, uh, there's, there's no escaping this at the same time that there's um, no substance that, um, that is there, that we keep imagining that it keeps going forward or backward or wherever we happen to travel with it. Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of the, the ultimate science fiction that our minds occupy everything everywhere. And, um, uh, and yet it's the experience that we cannot uh, escape um, so that um, we are always in that, um, in that tension between the two, which um, becomes, I mean, the more we're in the moment, the less we're in that tension. Um, if you are, as in the moment, as it says, in the moment there, there isn't, I mean, if the present can be reduced to the, the smallest aspect of the present, there's no space for mind to exist at that point. Um, right. It's also where upaya exists. I mean, this it's where it's where things happen. You said science fiction. I think it's more like a horror movie. <laughs> um, right, and I see Sagyoku nodding. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, it, right, right. And then the thing is, we 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 find we find this moment unbearable. Yeah. It's a real issue. We we really and this is where our practice is at, right? If and yeah, it's true. You know, when we come back to this moment, there's nothing here, and we find it unbearable to stay with. This is why it is it is a challenge to develop and stay with within samadhi. While it may feel great, it's also terrifying, and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to stay there. So we, we look for something. We look back, or we look forward. We either look at the past, or we futurize. Why? To escape this. 
we are trying to escape this, which is our practice is is exactly saying that, right? Stop trying to escape. Stay, stay, stay. You may find it challenging. Okay, stay for a little bit. And tomorrow, stay for a little bit longer. A little bit longer. And then we run back to our questions. Yes, but it's not what I think it is, not what I thought it is. That's the problem. Here, there are no questions. If there are no questions, we don't have to worry about answering anything, right? Because there's no need to answer. It's all present. So how do we how do we work with that? How do we work with our intolerance of this? How do we teach ourselves to not go back, to not go forward? Or maybe how do we even teach ourselves to not grasp this? Because we may grasp this, which doesn't make much difference, right? We can hold on to this and suppress thoughts and emotions. That won't work. And the thing with suppression is also, if we suppress, we are saying that there is something there to suppress, are we not? Mm -hmm. So, so either way, even if we, you know, so if, if we run with our thoughts and emotions and create something from it and blame others and all that, we are saying there's something there. If we suppress it, we're also saying there's something there. We validate. We, we actually validate the reasons for not being here. So, any thoughts about that? Or, or you may want to share your experience with uh, working on staying and finding it extremely challenging. How do you come back? And what do you come back to? Anyone? Should I choose somebody? Jushin, you want to say a few words? No, Junior, Gordon oh. was going to say oh, yeah, something. I was, I was gonna just, we, maybe okay. there's a way we can have a, like a moderator to help people um, be able to speak. I'll just speak up. Yeah, that's okay. You could raise the little hand there and uh, we will hopefully see that. But that's okay. Uh, you have to do it now. You can just speak. Yeah, I raised my physical hand. I think that was the... I didn't raise my um, my virtual hand. Okay. That was, that was the problem. The... Um, no, I thought I, I just wanted to share something. I know Erica can certainly probably relate to this as well, because of course we know this story from being in a tea ceremony practice. And um, when you study tea ceremony, of course you're given, you know, like, well, this is, you know, there's a form to it. You know, this is how to put things out. This is how to heat the water and, and pour the tea and everything. And uh, so the story has a quite of, I don't know, to me it evokes uh starting to learn uh, tea ceremony because, you know, when you start out, you, you begin to worry about like, you're like, oh no, you know, this, this, uh, you know, that what if I make this mistake? I always forget this one thing in this tea ceremony. So you start off with the tea ceremony already thinking about what mistakes you've made in the future and what you're going to have to do to change it. And then 
as you do things, sometimes you're like, oh no, I can't believe I forgot to do that just a moment ago. I missed this one step. And then you like harp on that in your mind. And, and, uh, and then you'll notice that your tea ceremony goes pretty badly um, in some sense, because you're worried so much about the future or the, or the past and everything. And um, of course, the very reason to practice tea ceremony is to come back and see it as just sort of one long continuous flow that you can just pass into and pass out of and, and everything that might come down the road, you know, as you serve your guests can be brought, you know, you can walk into it and walk right out of it again. As, mm. And, um, and everything that's behind is, is past. So you don't have to worry about it. So, um, yeah. And just that sort of letting go, you know, to let it be one long continuous flow. That's much, much greater than just these individual steps that are either right or wrong in that one moment. Right. So, so when we step out of the flow, uh, all the troubles begin, right? When we step out of the flow, when we are in the flow, we don't know. You know we really don't know what's going on because we, we are what's going on, right? So there's no judgment, there's no commentary, right? We are in the flow. Actually, when people take tests in Aikido, and I've seen it a bunch of times, you know, they are in it, they are, they are doing something, and then they do something that they, you know, quote-unquote mistake, right? This is, oh, yeah, they did not do the what they needed to do, or they were not quite uh, applying the, the, in the, right, the right technique. And then the mind starts to worry about it, and then everything else, after that, it's like a domino effect. Everything starts to go downhill. The, we step out of the flow, and... and, and and often we do, I mean, it happens, but what happens is that up, when we step out of the flow, the judgmental mind picks up momentum and then it, it robs us of the ability to get back because we don't trust it anymore. Although we have the ability, but we don't trust it anymore. So, and, and it's difficult to let go. So what? So, okay, I did not do it the way I was supposed to do it. If we let it go, we, we, we can immediately uh, come right back into the flow. But it means forgetting, and and it, and it is it is a practice by itself, obviously. So, thank you, Jushin. Oh, thank you. Um, I think what's what's striking me uh, in the conversation is this, um, and it was helpful what Gordon mentioned about flow regards to the tea ceremony, but I find that when I began practice, I had this idea about that really I, I need to start practice because I want to be more present. Uh, and I find the more I move along in my experience, I've discovered that I've somehow made an idol out of being present mm. and, um, as if that is something that to grasp in of itself and, and working with a lot of people, I hear that refrain, oh, I need to learn how to be more present to this person or to my children or to my situation. And um, I, 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 I'm really struggling with just what even that moment is and how, how quickly I can create uh, a story around being present, in fact. And I, and I, it makes me think a lot about how do I then 
trust my experience of uh, am I ultimately able to truly trust my experience because of the the interplay between past, present, future, mm. and how do I know when my mind is actually interfering and how am I creating an idea of what it means to have an experience even? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just questions around that. Right. Thank so you. you're saying, thank you, you're saying that you have made something out of being present as, as, as something that you, uh, I would, I want to be present, right? I want to be mm-hmm. more present, right? So, and it's a very interesting question, right? So to want to be present is to not be present, but we cannot, but we have to apply efforts, right? So we have to, there's got to be some uh, determination there or cultivation, right? Of So... I want to be present in it already has uh, a separation from the present moment, what we call the present moment, because I'm, I want to be in the flow, right? I want to be in the flow. He's saying I'm not in the flow. How can I step into the flow? So as long as I want to be in the flow, there is something to, there is a barrier, right? There is a barrier. And so there is a gap and I need to find ways to bridge the gap. But that is based on uh, fixation on separate existence. I want to be in the flow, but it's not uh, working with uh, the. Uh, it's not opening up to the possibility that I and the flow are not two. Right? What if I and the flow are not two? Then how can I be in the? How can I be in the flow? If I am the flow, if I'm nothing but movement, how can I stop moving? I can create an idea of not moving. Absolutely. And I can crawl into that idea and live there for the rest of my life. That's true. Right? That we can do. That that we do. But then we have to examine a lot of what we need to look at in terms of practice has to do with examining the baseline of our assumptions rather than try to, to rather than try to solve something that essentially is not there as a problem there is no problem there's nowhere to go there's nothing to achieve And that's, that's, you know, this is probably one of the biggest challenges for us. But not that we have to worry about it, because, you know, we practice and, and forget about it, and practice forget about it. And over time, practice does that, right? It, it actually loosens up the rigidity of the idea of separateness. It just does that. Especially if, you, if we don't obsess over practice, or, or, or obsess over what we want to do with it. It's nothing special. You sit, you just sit. You get up, just get up. You tie your shoes, just tie your shoes. That's it. That's where it's at. You eat, you eat. And this is what we're practicing, especially in Zazakai. Take Zazakai Sashin. What are we doing? What are we doing? We are dedicating ourselves to the most mundane aspects of life. 
we're doing the opposite of what the world is telling us to do. Right? We're investing our time and effort in doing nothing. Or, or in uh, paying attention to things that, are irre that we consider irrelevant or not important in life. So we do the opposite. Right? We do the opposite of what we're told. Uh, we have a few more minutes and just two paragraphs I want to finish with, but uh, anyone else that wants to speak? Yeah, Major, or Major and then uh, Paul. Go ahead. So um, I was listening to you. I used the example of, uh, of uh, Aikido, and um, I, I teach cosmetology, and I need to prepare my girls for state work. And when they come to me on the first week, they're all frantic. They're all scared. They're all thinking about the future and how they're going to remember all of these practicals. And they're going to be under a magnifying glass and being observed. So my job is pretty much to, to let them uh, release that anxiety and focus on one practical at a time and practice it so much that it becomes so familiar to them that they don't even have to think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. They just do. And by the time they leave, I pretty much assess them and they have released a lot of their issue uh, of anxiety from it. But the only way that they improve and get better is by practicing it and then be present. And what about, I'm going to forget this, practice today. And what if I don't do this practice, what I'm showing you today? And go over and over and return to the same practical until they're, they, be, they kind of develop muscle memory and they don't have to think anymore. They just do. Right. And that is what, I'm sorry, <laughs> my voice decided to, you know. So that is my, um, you know, that's how I addressed it. Okay. Yeah, this, this is how they, they decided to practice now, uh, yes. you know, roughhousing in front of you. But that is how I've been addressing it. And, and it's also, I also go by my anxiety of making sure that they, I'm preparing them for this practical. And I have to bring myself to the same thing. Let, let me show them what I know here right now at this moment observe and see where the weakness is or what they need to practice and then reteach as many times as I have to until I know that they're all, you know, how to grasp the information so that they, when they go there, they don't, they feel that confidence and that security that they know what they know. So when they go there, they don't feel the anxiety. They don't have the fear and they don't feel like they're prepared. So I always say, though, how do I uh, connect that to, to what I'm doing here to my practice? Yes, I sit and I, I think about all the things that maybe have not gone so perfectly well in the past, but then I have to sit here and, and focus on, you know, just being present and, you know, um, being connected to what it is that I need to be connected to at the moment, whatever it is that comes right. and try to release any thoughts or any expectations of the future. Right. You know, because I cannot work with and I can't control at the moment. I can only control what I'm at this moment, what I'm going through at, at this particular time. Yeah. So I connect what, you know, you were 
basically we can grasp the past, the future, or the present. We could just, you know, um, pretty much do whatever it is that we need to be doing at the moment and, and then go from there. Right. And also to, to not grasp, to not grasp uh, being present, right? To, 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 to not uh, to practice and forget and practice and forget. Forget that we even want to be present. Right to forget what we want to be present because wanting to be present is fixating on the present moment, right? So, but the present moment is equally ungraspable as the past and the future. It's not that we have to uh, uh, elevate the moment and then push aside past and future. The, f the past, future, and the present are equally ungraspable. So, so, so being in the moment is made up. There is no such thing as being in the moment. That's made up. It's very popular, but it's made up. So, thank you for that. Paul, a few, uh, couple of minutes and we're gonna wrap it up. Go ahead, unmute. We can't hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, great. That was good. Great. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, I found that the second part of this dialogue that you were talking about was extremely confusing to me until you opened it up to discussion and started talking about the flow. Mm -hmm. And for me, it just seems to connect back to the earlier conversation with the eyes. Mm -hmm. Right. And that it's that being in the moment is the same thing as having the Buddha eye. Yeah. It's just doing what is necessary, right? With no, uh, no regard to ego. There's nothing but, to eliminate, right? There's nothing to eliminate. So there's nothing to regard as separate. Yeah. Yeah. Because it sees, so, it sees through everything. Great. Yeah. Uh, but in the very beginning, when you were talking about, um, breaking it down to, in a sense, being in the moment, I was getting caught up with, well, if you're in the moment long enough, wouldn't you then create an ego? And I was getting, I was getting my mind all worked up about that. But then when you started talking about the flow, I realized that as the moments in time are moving, mm -hmm. you're, you're present in that one moment in the flow. So it, it kind of cleared it up a little bit for me. Yeah, and, and again, but I just wanted to make the connection with the the eyes, right? And again, this is this is a relief. I mean, it is a relief. You know, to, to actually experience it for real, to experience that is a great relief. To 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 get to the understanding or to come to the understanding that there's no need to go anywhere or do anything, ever. There's no need to go anywhere, do anything, create anything. There's no need to because it's not possible. That is a relief. And that, again, frees us, uh, frees our energy to be devoted to what's needed. Rather than to shake up something or to try to eliminate or, or eradicate something. So, anyway, thank you. With that, I'm going to finish with uh, two short paragraphs and we're going to wrap it up. Uh, about that, we're going to wrap up this chapter. Sheng Yi says... 
Beings are born from deluded thoughts and are thus themselves delusions. We are what we create. We are delusions. So we think we have to eradicate delusions, but we create that and we crawl into that. So what is it that we are trying to eradicate? But a delusion does not recognize a delusion. Hence, beings do not recognize their deluded thoughts. If beings recognized their deluded thoughts, they would at once be able to leave their delusions and see their real mind, which is the Buddha mind. Only the Buddha knows their myriad thoughts aren't thoughts. It's like the ocean and its myriad waves. The waves do not know that they aren't waves. Only the ocean knows that waves aren't waves. And then one last one from Huineng. Past thoughts cannot be found because past thoughts belong to the deluded mind. They are gone in a flash and there is no place to look for them. Present thoughts cannot be found because the true mind has no appearance. By what, by what means can it be seen? And future thoughts cannot be found because there is nothing to find. Hence, the force of habit ends. It does not appear again. Those who understand that these three thoughts cannot, the past, present, future, cannot be found are called Buddhas. So to realize that there is nothing there is to realize that there is nothing to realize. It's a good way to conclude this chapter. Thank you.